You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Good morning again, Grace Point Northwest. I'm uh, Nathan Marshall. I'm the pastor of uh, discipleship here at Grace Point uh, Northwest. But for those that don't know me, well, I'm also a lay pastor. What does that mean? That means I have a regular job during the week, and then I help out as I can as a pastor during the weekend as well as uh, during the week. So what do I do uh, as a regular job? Um, So I've been in the Air Force for 19 years. Actually, in April will be 20 years, and I've been trained... Uh, and this is going to be weird, but I've been trained to kill people. So I'm a F-15E weapon systems officer. And you're like, that doesn't sound like pilot, so what is that? Uh, those that have watched Top Gun, I'm Goose. I'm the guy in the back seat. So uh, that's what I do. So due to manning issues, both here at Nellis Air Force Base, as well as up in Mountain Home, Idaho, uh, I go to Mountain Home to fly every month. So at the beginning of this month, I went up there and we flew a defensive counter-air mission. And you're like, what is that? And for all of us in the military, we're like, that's DCA. Like, why, why don't you know that? We love acronyms. I understand that. But defensive counter-air. So imagine that we have enemy aircraft airborne, and their target is this church. And they're going to destroy this church with bombs. But they also have air-to-air missiles. So my job would be to intercept them, shoot them down with air-to-air missiles or with the gun if I got that close before they could drop their bombs. But guess what? In order to do that, I can't just go out and immediately take off and do this on a whim. I can't uh, go out without any mission planning. So there's very uh, intensive mission planning that has to be done to figure out what is their capabilities air-to-air for their air-to-air missiles as well as what is their release range on their bombs And based on the altitude, that's going to change because that's going to dictate my tactic and as well as what are their tactics to try and uh, uh, maneuver against all of my weapons as well. So there's a lot of mission planning, but the one mission planning portion that is the hardest is figuring out when I'm going to change the level of risk that I'm going to take as an air crew, uh, how close I'm going to get to them at different points Uh, portions of the mission depending on how close they are to you Um, so as my the further are the further away they are guess what I don't have to adhere to as much risk I don't have to go to emerge and possibly die but as they get closer here I have to increase my level of risk and possibly die so that you guys wouldn't die so that's the mission planning that has to go into it and the thought process that has to happen into it. So today, we are going to truly count uh, the cost as we do in in this mission planning process and understand when our lives are expendable in order to save the majority. So we're going to discuss this same mission planning process, but on a spiritual side, what is God calling us to do as disciples, as followers of Jesus? All right, so our main scripture today is in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. As I dig into this uh, verse, I implore you to follow along with your either analog Bible, so 
paper Bible or digital. If you don't have one after the service, please go to the Connect Here table. There's free Bibles in both English and Spanish. But guess what? The verses will also be up on the screen, so don't worry. All right, so at, before I get into it, we kind of have to lay a little context of who is Luke? Who is this guy named Luke? When did he uh, write the book of Luke? And what is happening prior to this? So Luke was a, not a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was also a doctor. He was an early convert of the first century church. And he was a travel companion of Paul. He also wrote the book of Acts. So now as we talk about what he's written, he's, he wrote the book of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. Well, we know when the book of Acts was written because it ends with Paul dying. So we know, and when we have historical context from uh, other uh, authoritative people who've uh, talked about history, that we knew that he died in 61 A.D., so we don't know when Luke was published, the book of Luke was published, but we know it's before that. But we also know that Jesus died around 33 AD. So that means that the book of Luke was published, sent out to the churches, sent out to Christians less than 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of uh, Jesus. Which is important because guess what? If, if all that was written in the book of Luke is all false, guess what? People could have said, no, he didn't say that. He didn't do that. But guess what? The fact that we still have the book of Luke is, is very important because it's, it uh, talks to the validity of the book of Luke. Alright, so now what is happening prior to chapter 9, verses 18 through 23? So in chapter 8, there's a man named Jarius who works in the temple, and he is, um, his daughter is sick. She's on her deathbed, and he's runs to the temple because he knows Jesus is there. And he goes to Jesus. He's like, please, please come to my house. Heal my daughter. And Jesus says, don't worry. Trust me. And he, and he, and he starts going to his house. But on the way, the entire crowd, the multitudes are following him. They're all wanting a piece of Jesus. To include a lady who has been bleeding for 12 years. And she reaches down and she grabs the hem of his garment. And immediately he stops. He's like, who touched me? And his disciples are like, well, everybody's trying to touch you. He's like, no, someone touched me and, the, and my power left me. And so he turns around and this lady is crying. And, and she's like, well, I knew if I just touched the hem of your garment that I would be healed. And he's like, because of your faith, you are healed. So he continues on. And he's going to Jairus' house. And the, um, some of his servants run to Jairus and like, don't bother the master because your daughter's already dead. Jesus turns to Jairus and says, hey, just trust me. Don't worry, just trust me. So they continue to his house. He's like, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Everybody laughs at Jesus. He goes into the house, kicks everybody else out. He goes in there and he raises her uh, from the dead. So the disciples have seen this just in the previous couple days. Now in the beginning portion of chapter 9, he feeds the 5,000. So we're, we always know of, hey, he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and uh, two fish, but those were 5,000 men. As all the men in the room can attribute to, we never go by ourselves, maybe to a sporting event, but we never go anywhere to learn anything by ourselves. It's usually the wives 
that have forced us to do it. Let's be honest. And there's usually little munchkins like two of mine that are in here that have come with. So conservative estimate, he fed probably 15,000 people um, with five loaves of bread and two fish. And there was leftovers. There was baskets of leftovers. So the disciples have seen all these wonderful miracles and seen the power, and they've heard his wisdom time and time again leading up to these verses. So that leads into verse 18. So as he, as he leaves uh, feeding the 5,000, he escapes to then uh, go pray uh, by himself. And he asks them, verse 18, and he asks them, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So they've already given up everything, which I'll talk to here shortly, to follow him. But that last sentence in verse 20 is so key. Peter has finally realized that he is the Christ. So who is the Christ? Those that were here um, for Christmas Eve service learned that he was an anointed one. The Messiah, the King of Kings, the one that the prophets have been prophesying about for the past 700 years. So our beginning step as a disciple is to believe and to trust, not just that he is the Messiah, but he is our Messiah. Now the question is, can I just believe this as factual data and that's it? Can we just believe that he is God, but not truly trust in him? So as I began to dig into this passage, I I was wondering, I'm like, is there a difference between the English word believe and the Greek word that we've translated it into believe? And I actually found out that there is a difference. So that Greek word is called pitu, and it means to entrust one's spiritual well-being to, commit to, put in trust with. And our word out of the Webster Dictionary, believe means to have confidence or faith in the truth of, a positive assertion, a story to give credence to. And when I read that the first time, I'm like, yeah, those are kind of the same. But as I read it a second and third time, I realized there's a difference. So I'm going to read it a second time. So pitu means to entrust one's spiritual well-being to, commit to, put in trust with. Our word believe means to have confidence or faith in the truth of, give credence to. So there's a big difference in the meaning. We cannot just believe in the facts. We must entrust our soul and our lives to Jesus. We must commit to Jesus solely. Which leads us into verses 21 and 22. So what does Jesus say after that? And He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So they finally realized who He was. That He's the King of Kings. The Messiah. And now Jesus responds with, hey, you can't tell anybody. And by the way, I have to die. So in Luke, it doesn't give the disciples response to Him. But in Mark chapter 8, it does. So in verse 32 and 33 of Mark 8, 
says, And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So from Peter's perspective, it's like, you're supposed to be the king of kings. And guess what? You're supposed to rule over the Romans because they've been oppressing us for our entire lives and our parents and our grandparents. You're supposed to be the king of kings. You're supposed to take over this rule. So did Peter truly believe that Jesus was a Christ? I think he did. But he only wanted a portion of it. He only wanted the king of kings. He did not want the suffering servant. He wanted the conqueror. He knew if Jesus became the king of kings ruling over the Romans, that he also would have power, prestige, and influence. He wanted to be second in command. And it's really easy to point fingers at Peter. However, do we not attempt to manipulate God in the same way? Do we not try and compartmentalize Him? When we read His promises of what He will, what he will give us, do we only want the promise and we don't read the verses either before or after of the obedience that has to come either before or after to get those promises? Or maybe as like half of our church right now is either sick or in the hospital, do we not? I remember I've done this before is as my loved ones are in the hospital and they're dying, I'm like, Lord, I will serve you for the rest of my life only if you save them and you heal them. So we're telling the Creator of our universe, like, Lord, I'll only take you out of this box if you do this first for me. So what does it truly look like to trust Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Verse 23, which we'll spend most of the time on, has three specific easy steps not to accomplish, but easy steps to follow, but very hard to accomplish. Verse 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So the first step is deny yourself. So the Greek word is arnume, which means to forget oneself entirely, or to give over complete control, that you no longer have any control. It means to deny our sinful selves, our selfish desires. So how do we actually do that? How do we accomplish that on a daily basis, basis in this culture, in this time? I think first we need to look to how did the disciples deny themselves? In Luke chapter 5, 1-11, I'll just paraphrase it. So Peter, James, and John were all fishermen. Back in those days, that was not a... Um, a well-looked-upon job. Why? Because they worked crazy hours, they had to work hard, and they always smelled like fish. So it was not prestigious at all. So they, in, in chapter 5, they had been out all night fishing, had not caught a thing. And in the morning, they're cleaning their nets, and on the shore, Jesus is preaching to a crowd. But the crowd is getting bigger and bigger. So Jesus steps into their boat and they kind of push off from shore so he can project his voice and talk to the multitude. After he's done preaching, he told them to cast their clean nets over the side. 
And they obey Him and they do it immediately. And they catch such a huge catch that they almost begin to sink. He then tells them to drop their nets and follow Him. For He will make them fishers of men. The key is what do they do then? They've already obeyed Him. They've already just cleaned all their nets. And now they just cast their nets right by the shore, which makes no sense from a fisherman's perspective. Now what do they do when He says, hey, leave all this behind and follow Me? They immediately, they dropped their nets and followed Jesus. They left their fish, which is probably the biggest catch that they've ever had, behind. They left their careers, their livelihood, their fathers, their family, their friends, and followed Him. And the other nine disciples did the exact same thing. They gave up everything immediately to follow Jesus. So how do we practically follow Jesus in this way by denying ourselves? Well, it goes back to the definition. We need to, it means to forget oneself entirely. To totally give over control to God. So as individuals, either singled or married, where are our priorities? Are they for us first? Leaving God and others the leftovers? Are we putting His mission in front of our wants? Does our vision and goals match God's? Are the lost continually on our mind? And are we serving our fellow brother and sister in Christ? And the hardest one, are we serving our neighbors? The neighbors that are not like us. The neighbors that are not Christians. Are we serving them even if they're not nice to us? So as those that are married husbands, are we leading by loving and serving our wife like Christ did the church? Are we sacrificing for them? Are we pastoring her soul? Or are we, like me, who's my tendency is to be a workaholic, are we chasing after that promotion without thinking or consulting with our family on the time it will take away from them? We always say that it's for them, but is it truly? Do they need your money or your presence? So wives, are you honoring and respecting your husband Are you supporting, encouraging, and challenging Him in godliness? Are you putting His needs above your own? And for those that are parents in the room, which here at Grace Point Northwest, we like to make lots of kids, by the way. We're 40 to 45% of us of our gathering every Sunday are kids. So are we raising up future men and women of God or do we just discipline to make things easy? Either we're like me, I tend to be the disciplinarian, like, hey, here's all the rules. You break one of those, here's the punishment. But what am I forgetting? I'm forgetting the heart behind the sin. Or are you on the other spectrum where, guess what, I just want to be their friend and discipline is way too hard. But we always have to go back to the Word in Ephesians 6, 4, at the very end of it, it says to bring them up tenderly with loving kindness in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are commanded to make disciples. And we must see our children as future men and women of God. And guess what? When you have that one-year-old that's already in the terrible twos, that's really hard to see her as a future woman of God. 
But C.S. Lewis has a good quote that kind of ties this in together. He says, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. We have to remember and look to the cross, look to Jesus, and remember who we are in comparison. We have to take our eyes off ourselves, put our eyes on the cross, our eyes on Christ. We can't do this once. We must be daily. So now the second step of verse 23 is to take up our cross. It says, take up His cross daily. So at this point, the disciples who grew up you know, in Galilee, but now they've been down in Jerusalem with Jesus. They have seen the Romans, how they persecute, I mean, what happens to criminals. Guess what? They get uh, lashed, 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails, and then after that, they get crucified on a cross outside the city. So when he says, take up your cross daily, they immediately could understand that this was a one-way trip to die. And back in those days, if the criminal, if the prisoner who was going to get crucified didn't die, the centurion in charge would die in their place. And then probably the criminal immediately thereafter. So how is this different than denying myself? So it's suffering that we endure for His sake, for His will. It's not those ordinary struggles in life. It's not the repercussions of unwise decisions. It's not the repercussions of sin. So now, how did the disciples live this out? So originally there's 12 disciples, but Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. And immediately after that, he felt sorry, so he went and hung himself. So now we're down to 11. So after Jesus' ascension into heaven, the other disciples decided to pick Matthias. So now we're back up to 12. But then Paul was converted on the way to Damascus and he was considered one of the apostles. So now we're up to 13. So what happened to the 13 apostles? Did they live that mission out? Did they go into all the world to make disciples? Or were they scared and did they stay in Jerusalem? Well, of the 13, 12 were martyred for their faith. John was the only one who did not But guess what? They tried multiple times. Ending in the fact that they actually submerged him into boiling oil and then they took him back out and he was still alive and he wasn't even burnt. So they're like, I don't think we're going to be able to kill him. So they send him to the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of Ephesus in Turkey. But the other thing to note is where were they martyred? So some were martyred in Turkey, Greece, India, China, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, Persia, Italy, as well as Armenia. So they took their mission to make disciples of all nations seriously, and they were willing to carry their cross and die for it. So now the next step. So we've looked at the disciples now. How did Jesus carry His cross? In order to truly describe this, we have to go through both the floggings as well as the crucifixion. So the Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They were usually consisted of 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails. So that's a whip with nine different sections on it, each one attached with bone or metal or other objects that would purposely, uh, the purpose of them was to tear flesh off of the body. 
The third century historian described a flogging by saying the sufferer's veins were laid bare, the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. And 50% of them died from the floggings alone, and they never ever made it to the crucifixion. So after Jesus did that, where he did not complain, did not whine at all, he then had to carry his crossbeam out of the city, uphill to Golgotha. Once he got there, they took the crossbeam, they laid him down, and they took a five to seven inch uh, spike, and they put it through his wrist. Right where, your, uh, right where your bones meet. But guess what? The Romans did this on purpose because there's a median nerve right there. So it's extremely painful. From there, then they would stretch his arms out until they dislocated his shoulders and then put another five to seven inch spike through his other wrist. The pain that was experienced from that spike on the median nerve created a new word. The word excruciating, which means out of the cross. After that, then they attached him to the vertical portion of the cross and they put his feet together and then they put another five to seven inch spike through the perfect spot in his feet that would hold him up, but it was right against all of the nerves. It was said that crucifix and Crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and the diaphragm put the chest into the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so the tensions on the muscles would be eased for a moment. But in doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. As a person slows down his breathing because it's painful to exhale, he's going into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have known that he was at the moment of death. Which is when he was able to say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died of cardiac arrest. He died of a heart attack for you and for me. And I know it is hard to hear that, but we have to be reminded of how he carried his cross for us. That was the death that we deserved, not that He deserved. He did not sin. He took our sin. He took our punishment for us. So how do we take up our cross? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German pastor during World War II and died in a Nazi prison camp, said this, Only when we have become completely oblivious of self are we ready to bear the cross For His sake, if in the end we know only Him, if we have ceased to notice the pain of our own cross, we are indeed looking only unto Him. If Jesus had not so graciously prepared us for this Word, we should have found it unbearable. But by preparing us for it, He has enabled us to receive even a word as hard as this 
as a word of grace. So now the question is, in verse 23, that second step, why would he add daily on the end of it? And as I studied it and I thought about it, I think it means that laying ourselves on the altar of daily obedience. We cannot just deny ourselves once. We can't just take up our cross once. It's a daily obedience. A daily remembering who He is. But it also reminded me of John 6.31-33. through 33. So he's talking, the crowd is actually talking to him and he responds in this verse. So the crowd saying, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what is manna? Why is he comparing himself to manna, to bread? So manna, actually in the Hebrew, means what is it? So during the Exodus story, as Israelites are leaving Egypt, they are in the wilderness, and they're hungry, and they're tired, and they're complaining to Moses. And Moses goes and prays to God, like, can you please just give them something? They need some bread. So guess what? He's like, okay, I'll send manna down in the morning, every morning. But the key there is that the rules behind the manna, I think, apply to this verse. So back then, Moses said, you can only get enough for that day. If you get anything extra, the extra will spoil. But the day before the Sabbath, you can get two portions, if you will. So, Jesus is comparing himself to the manna. So if we try to survive on an entire week, on a daily dose of Jesus, so just from Sunday, we start trying to survive on our own strength and power, which is always going to reveal our selfish, sinful heart. And guess what? People are going to smell our manna that we should be getting from Jesus, whereas we're trying to do it ourselves. They're going to start to smell it as we're trying to survive off off one dose for the entire week. So we have to abide in Him daily in order to carry our cross daily. We can't carry our cross until we die to ourselves. But we can't do this of our own power and strength, for our hearts are naturally like my one-year-old, selfish. So the key to that change in heart, I think Thomas Chalmers says it very well. He says the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. So we need to remember what Jesus did for us in that affection for Him and what He has done and be looking to the cross. Remembering what He has done. So now the question is, can I be a disciple or can I be a Christian and not carry my cross? Can I just do part of it? Because that sounds hard. That sounds difficult. Luke 14, 27 uh, through 30, and then verse 33 says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And then verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So now the question goes back to the, our mission planning at the very beginning. Have we counted the cost? Have we truly, do we think he is worth it? We can't follow him to try and gain our salvation. We run after due to the adoration of what he has done for us. However, we must truly believe and trust in him. We have to count the cost first. But it's amazing being in the military how easy we will sacrifice ourselves to save someone else's lives that we don't know in combat. Or maybe here in, in Las Vegas, we'll save someone like who's getting um, held up by gunpoint. We'll save them. But guess what? Will we live that way for an entire lifetime? We live consistently and sacrificially for Jesus, the one who paid it all and count the cost for us. For the one who took the punishment that we deserved, and in turn, we received his perfect record. Now, on to step three of uh, verse 23 it says, And follow me. So Jesus calls us to follow Him, which meant following Him in action, intention, heart, desires, all the way to death. You cannot follow someone by knowledge alone. It requires an action. His obedience and submission to the Father took Him to deny His home, His power, His desires, His comfort. It cost Jesus His life because He first loved us while we were still sinners. So how do we actually live this out? How do we follow Him? Mark 12, 30-31, I think says it succinctly. It's very hard to accomplish, but I think it says it succinctly. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And for me, it would be really easy if he said, you shall love the Lord with your mind. But guess what? He says, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he follows it up to love your neighbor as yourself. So that begs a question, who is our neighbor? And it's easy to love your own child, even if they were going through the terrible twos. But how about that neighbor who's of a different race, different background, different religion, different interests? How about your coworker that is from a different political party? How about that boss that is a tyrant? So He has commanded us to love our neighbors. And many times we try and compartmentalize that and label who our neighbors are. But it is anyone that we encounter, not just those who are like us. 
when we have excuses of why we are not, is it because we want our will or His will to be accomplished? Again, where are our eyes? Are they on ourselves or are they on Him? So in the military, as we fly missions, we judge ourselves by multiple criteria that we call objectives. So these drive um, if we can call this single mission a success or not for the big picture war. These objectives define how to accomplish the mission as well as they hint at the why. So objectives, goals, and visions will drive our lives. If we are only reactionary, we will cater to our own emotions, our own desires, as well as our culture's emotions and desires, which are inherently sinful. When we truly realize that we are at war spiritually for souls, guess what? It will change our mentality, our determination, and it will revolutionize our prayers. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So as I talked about defensive counter-air at the beginning, I talked about defending the church. But as we go through all of this, guess what? We are called to level, change our level of risk to high and be willing to die for, for the mission. And that mission is to make disciples who live in community for the community. But mainly, we're trying to make disciples for the lost. We're, our eyes are on the lost and we're fighting for their souls. So as we do that, it changes everything. And why do we say, why is our vision to make disciples of Jesus who live in community for the community? Because Jesus commanded us to in Matthew 28, 18-20, which Travis is going to preach to in three weeks. But now as we think about being a disciple, we need to also think about how were the disciples discipled. It wasn't one-on-one. They weren't just saved and then He left them alone. So there's 12 men that He discipled for three years. And within those 12, there was an inner three. Peter, James, and John. But in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, there's only four times that Jesus preached to the crowd. The rest of the time, He took pouring into His 12 disciples. That points to that, guess what? We cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this on an island. We need a wingman. We need a battle buddy. We need someone who's ready to go to battle with us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to keep our eyes on the cross, to keep our eyes on the vision. Many times, especially in the U.S. here, we think that the finish line is being saved and being baptized. But that's only the starting line. God wants our character to continue to build because He's going to work through us. Yes, He could easily just come down and save people, but He works 
through us. But our character needs to continue to change so that He can continue to work through us and people can look to us. So within, with that, what is your next step? Do you have men or women who are mentoring you? And are you mentoring other ones spiritually? If not, if you're not in a community group, please uh, sign up for a community group. There will be a, um, a screen with uh, the phone number to text. And with that number, just text group. And then you can sign up for a community group so that we can help hold each other accountable. But guess what? We all bring something to the fight. And something that we're starting here in January is called discipleship groups. So it's going to be groups of three to five men or women, but we are going to spend a year diving into the Word, reading the same passages every day, memorizing Scripture, praying for each other, keeping each other accountable to the vision of making disciples who live in community for the community. So to be a disciple, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Him. We need to let Him lead the way, and all we have to do is just obey. If you're not a believer or a follower of Jesus, your step today is to believe and trust that Jesus is our Savior. For those that are Christ followers but have been walking the fence, commit your way to Jesus count the cost and remember what he has done for us let us pray